Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. Yeah, let's pray together as we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the the willing lamb, that you would lay down your life for us, and yet you are also our great shepherd, and we are your sheep. And I ask, Holy Spirit, today we would hear the voice of our Savior. I pray that we would hear the voice of Jesus through the words of Scripture by simply being present together in this place. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you give us the words that you have prepared for us? Would our hearts receive them and our minds be open to them? In Jesus' name, those things that would hinder us from hearing the word of the Lord to us today, we just ask that that would not be present in this place, but that we would, we would know that as we gather together, we have formed the temple where a Holy Spirit dwells. Let us be mindful of your presence. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. It was probably, I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago, when I read a book that profoundly impacted how I viewed every single interaction I had with every single person. That's a pretty big claim, but it did. It changed, every, it changed the way I viewed uh, my entire life. And the book is called The Tangible Kingdom. And the author, Hugh Halter, the author wrote this, and I thought it was really impactful. He said, when I walk into a Starbucks, I don't think about the coffee I'm going to have. That's predetermined. I get a tall Americano. I wish my Starbucks order was that simple. I'm always like, whoa, they got like cold foam and all this like crazy stuff. I'm always tempted to try it, but then I'm like, no, I'll just get the blonde roast. But so I should, I should have that locked down. But he says, instead, I don't think about the coffee when I walk into Starbucks. Instead, I ponder the lives of everyone I see. I wonder about their spiritual journeys and where they're looking for direction in their search. And my assumption is that in any room full of people, very few know Christ. And I ask myself, how could I get into their lives? Or how could a conversation begin? And I don't see them as projects. That wouldn't go very far. I simply see them as souls that the Lord loves, who haven't seen or heard an accurate message about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And I always feel confident that I might be talking with them about life and God, and oddly, it happens often. And so after reading this, I started trying to do this. I tried to think about all the people around me. I tried to imagine what their lives and their spiritual lives look like. It's like when you go to a restaurant and your waitress is serving you, and I'm wondering, I wonder if she grew up in a a home of faith. I wonder what she's doing with her life now. When I talk to the guy at the, at the Home Depot and he's shaking my paint cans, I'm wondering about, you know, I wonder if he grew up in the church. I wonder if he's a believer. And I try and be intentional about the way that I look at the people around me. I try to imagine what their lives and their spiritual lives look like. And so the way I phrase it is, I try to live my life with intentionality. To recognize that everywhere I go and whoever I am talking to, I am representing more than myself. I'm representing King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven to which I belong, which is why it it so bothers me when I see Christians treating people in their community poorly. Because I go, not only are you treating a person poorly, but you're misrepresenting the king and the kingdom to which you belong. You know, I kind of think there's that that double standard of, you know, you can sing praises on a Sunday morning and then you're yelling at your Starbucks barista on Monday. And I'm going, that doesn't work for me. 
That's a misrepresentation of the king and the kingdom to which you say you belong. And so I read this book, The Tangible Kingdom, and uh, listen, this is hard for me because I'm introverted. Like, I love it when I go into a restaurant and the waiter or waitress is, is not super attentive. I'm like, great, don't talk to me. I love it. So this is hard for me. That's what I'm telling you. Like, this is not like, oh, I'm just a natural extrovert and I love talking to everybody. I'm like, no, I naturally, like, if I go into a church and nobody says hi to me, I'm like, awesome. Love your church. Love it. Right? That's clearly not what most people want. But I mean, for me, I'm like, yeah, let me come in. Let me go out. Don't talk to me. Um, Because I'm introverted. So this is hard for me. It means, that's why I use that word intentionality. I have to be intentional about making conversation. I have to be intentional about how I live my life. So it was a little bit after reading this, probably, yeah, eight years after reading this, that um, that I I was out at a restaurant with three of my closest friends. And we hadn't seen each other in a long time. And uh, some of them had moved back into the area, and it was the first time we'd all been able to meet up. And this was kind of right as the COVID lockdowns were starting to lift, and you were just allowed to go back out into restaurants for the open for summer time. Um, and so we were out at this restaurant, we were talking, and we were laughing a lot, and we were probably being a little bit loud. And this couple walked up to us, and they say, you guys look like you're having a lot of fun. Can we join you? Which is super weird. And for an introvert who likes his like, close group of friends, my immediate reaction is, go away. Right? That's my immediate reaction. Like, I don't want, why would I want to talk to a bunch of strangers? I got my best friends here. But living with intentionality. Of course, come on in and join us. This is super weird, but okay. Um, and we're all in ministry, so the rest of them are a little bit, they're a little more extroverted, so they are fine with it. So as a conver- the conversation is progressing, we find out that they're out for a date. They've got a babysitter for their kids at home, and I'm like, this is even more weird. Like, why are you out on a date, but now you're joining four dudes? Like, this is, like, so strange. And um, so we're, we're talking, though, and, and we find out, the wife says to us, well, we actually wanted to join you because we lost a child four months ago. It was Sid's. And, and we're, we're out for our first date trying to get some normalcy into our lives. But we were sitting there, and we couldn't stop talking and thinking about our loss. And we just, we heard you guys laughing, and we, I just said to my husband, we just need to be around happy people. We just, need, we just need some people around us to take us out of this grief. What an opportunity if you're trying to live intentionally. So we all expressed how sorry we were for their loss, and we talked to them about the source of our joy being Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. But not in that weird way of like, oh, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. No, what we did is we shared our own sorrow. So my one friend and his wife had gone through multiple miscarriages. So he shared with them how they were able to make it through all those tragedies because of God's presence in the midst of their pain. And I shared about the child that we had lost and how we saw Jesus come in and and bring peace where there was no peace and bring joy where there was to be no joy. And then we, we were able to pray a blessing over them and their family. We talked about how God enters into our places of sorrow and tragedy and he weeps with us and he walks with us and he comforts us and that the world is a broken place and that's exactly why Jesus had to come. It was a great conversation. And then we went back to having fun, but they were with us. And I'm going to say something maybe a little bit controversial here, but you know, this couple didn't need us to whip out our well-rehearsed evangelistic sales pitch on the four spiritual laws. They needed to hear how Jesus had shaped our own journeys of sorrow and grief. And how in the midst of tragedy, we experienced God's presence. And how faith, and how, and how the very presence of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit helped us in our journeys of grief. 
The one thing that I didn't do well is I didn't get their phone number after, so I never got to check in. That, you know, 101. If you're having a really deep, intense conversation, try and get a contact to see how they're doing later on. But that's what I mean about living with intentionality. Always being ready to share the hope that you have in Jesus. It's always the same message. It's always about Jesus. But there might be a different method to get there. And we're going to actually look at how this looks in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul lived his life with intentionality, right? He tells us this. He says, when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too live under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I do this so I can bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. And then he goes on, he says, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. Now, I know that when I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, I get, he's an evangelist, I'm not an evangelist, he's an apostle, I'm not an apostle, so maybe there's a part of me and maybe you, you're thinking, well, what in the world am I going to do like the Apostle Paul? How does the Apostle Paul's life impact me at all. We might view his life as way too different from our own life to learn from him, but I think we can learn from him this intentionality that he approaches life with, right? That he says, I try and find common ground with everyone so that I might share the gospel with them. I'm like, well, that's, that's something we can do. You might not be an evangelist, you might not be an apostle, but you can find common ground with everyone, so the Apostle Paul approaches his life, he views his life not as his own life to do with whatever he pleases, but he recognizes that the light of Christ must shine brightly in him because he is an ambassador of the kingdom of God. As Paul puts it in the text that we're going to read today, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So Paul understands that we have this glorious eternal future to look forward to. And so if we have this glorious eternal future that is secure for us in Christ, then what is this life for? Well, this life is for Christ. It's not about, it's not all just about me. It's about who I am in Christ and then what does Christ want me to do in this life? And Paul says he makes the most of every opportunity to speak of the hope he has in Christ. Now, I want us to understand that as Paul writes those words, to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul's sitting in a jail cell. He's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, and he's in a jail cell in chains, and he's dictating this letter, and he doesn't know what the future holds, and yet even in this, Paul is able to say this. If we come into Philippians chapter 1, he says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, this is in verse 12 that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And I love this. Paul is like, brothers and sisters, don't worry about the chains around my wrists and don't worry about the fact that I'm in a jail cell because the gospel is being proclaimed even to the palace guard. To live is Christ. I'm still alive, I'm still breathing to live as Christ. The gospel is being proclaimed. The brothers and sisters are being strengthened in the Lord. Rejoice. And everything that Paul experiences, he keeps Jesus at the center of it. If he's free to travel, he goes to where Christ must be preached. If he is in chains, he sees opportunity for Christ to be proclaimed. He writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And then he goes on, he says, but if I was to die, I would go to be with Christ, which is better, I am torn. But look at this, and I, and I go, these words that Paul writes here carry weight to the church in Philippi because Paul lived these words out. These are not empty words. The example of Paul's life proves that this is exactly what he means, that he will have sufficient courage so that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether in life or in death. And I think these words from Paul confront us because the words from Paul here call us to live with Jesus at the center of our lives, but if we're being honest, I think that conflicts with our desires. If we're honest, we often want everything to revolve around us, our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions, our plans. And so if you're anything like me, then every day there's a call to die, a call to die to myself and to live for Jesus. Each day I'm being asked to choose who's on the throne of my life today. Is King Jesus truly on the throne of my life today or have I taken control again? Now, if Jesus is truly on the throne of my life, then my life is not my own. I am his representative and his priest in the world. Not just me. I'm not saying I'm a priest because I'm up here preaching. We are all a royal priesthood of believers. Jesus has made it so that all who are indwelt by his spirit are royal priests in the kingdom of God. Each one of us is a representative, a priest in the world around us. And so I'm his representative. And so I might not be an evangelist. I don't think I have that gifting. Maybe you're like, I'm not an evangelist either. But I can say this, you can live life with intentionality. You can recognize that every single place you go, every interaction you have with someone, you are the representative of Christ to that person. Whether it's in a small thing like putting in your Starbucks order, or whether it's people coming up to you in a restaurant and talking about the the baby they just lost. You are the representative of Christ in this world. So we're just beginning this kind of really short sermon series, kind of, I call it a flyby of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And I'm kind of taking a popular verse or a popular passage out of each chapter and expanding on it. And today, of course, we're doing to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I thought the reason these words carry weight is because the people in Philippi saw Paul live this out. The Philippian church only exists because Paul lived his life in such a way that he used every conversation and every situation as an opportunity to share Christ. And so I just wanted to walk through the history of the church in Philippi. And I think I did this once um, a while ago, but I thought we're going to go through it again, just how each person comes to faith in Philippi. And we're going to look at how Paul uses every situation and every moment as an opportunity to share what Christ is doing. And we're going to come into Acts chapter 16. It says this, they went in, they traveled in, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, the leading city of the district of Macedonia. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with me. And she persuaded us. What can we know about Lydia, the first convert to Christ in Philippi? Well, first thing we're told is that she was a worshiper of God already. 
So Lydia has somehow come to believe that, that there is one God. She's been listening. The, the whole reason Paul goes down to the river is that it was common that if there was a city where there was no actual synagogue, then the Jewish people would meet down at the river. That was sort of the common gathering place. So Lydia has somehow become a part of this. When Paul's there, it's just a group of women. But he goes down there and there's a group of women who are there to pray and to, to study scripture. And Lydia is a believer in one God. So she's listened to the teachings of the Jewish people and, and she's trying to grasp what it means to live a God-fearing life. She wants to live out her faith. And this is such an important point in the story of Lydia's conversion is that she seems to be an intellectual. She's down there to study and to pray. And she's a, a spiritual seeker. She's come to believe in the one Lord God. And she's gathered on the Sabbath with a group of women to hear the scriptures explained. And so Paul, he sees that opportunity and he engages in Lydia's reason. He engages her intellect. It's through an impartation of his knowledge of the scriptures that she becomes a believer in Christ. It says she immediately gets baptized. Her whole household gets saved. So again, Lydia is this like powerhouse woman. I'm getting baptized. My whole household's getting baptized. We're all in this together. And then she invites Paul to stay in her home. And I'm sure that was a blessing for Paul and his companion. She had probably a fairly nice home as a dealer of purple cloth, a very wealthy woman. So the church in Philippi begins here with an intellectual explanation of the gospel to a high-class, wealthy businesswoman. But then the church gets more diverse if we continue into the narrative. It says, once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. So the Greek text is telling us that she actually had a spirit of python. This is a link to her being associated with the serpent oracle at Delphi. And she was making her owners a pile of money because of the spirit that indwelt her that would, that would foretell the future. We read that Paul became annoyed, and I've always kind of struggled with this. Like, Paul, why are you getting so annoyed? Um, I, think, I think the King James actually translates this really nicely. It says, Paul became grieved. He became grieved. And I think he's, he's looking at this poor slave girl. I don't think he's annoyed at the slave girl. He's annoyed at the spirit. He's annoyed at the spirit which is controlling this, this woman who's speaking through her, abusing her, and causing chaos. I mean, there's a little bit of truth in what she's saying, but it's causing chaos in the area, and Paul's annoyed at this spirit. He's grieved at this, for this poor slave girl. So Paul frees her from the spirit of divination, but her owners are upset about that because that's how they made her money off of her. She can't tell fortunes anymore. Now, it would be... There's kind of a mystery here. What happens to this slave girl? We don't know her name. But I've been wrestling with this, and I, I think this is, there's kind of this interesting flow here that, that we have Lydia who comes to faith, the slave girl delivered from a demon, and a Philippian jailer who comes to faith. And I think what Luke is trying to tell us in, this, in the way he records these events is even though it's, this is how it happened, I can't imagine that this slave girl will now just be left on her own. I imagine that the Philippian church that is forming would be in contact with her. They wouldn't be able to rescue her from her, her life of slavery, but they'd be able to walk with her into the freedom that she's experiencing in Christ. But, and so I, I do believe that there's a, there's a good reason to think that this slave girl ended up in Lydia's house church. 
So we see that the owners of this girl are upset that their source of income has been removed and they're causing a great deal of trouble for Paul and Silas. And this leads us to the third convert of faith in Philippi. It says this, when her owners realized that their hope of making more money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar, advocating customs unlawful for us to practice or accept. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. With a man like Paul, whose whole life is really summed up here, I think, in those words, to live as Christ... Well, even the jail cell represents opportunity to speak of Christ and sing of his goodness. I am always amazed by this. I've talked about this before. But I just want you to imagine yourself beaten with rods for doing something good, for delivering someone of an evil spirit. You're beaten with rods. You're thrown into jail. Your feet are put into stocks. Would your first reaction be, How unfair is this? When I get out of here, I'm going to sue every last one of these people, right? How dare they treat me like this? Paul's first go-to is to praise. I just think this is something that we need to dwell on, that that in the utmost of suffering, in in unfair and harsh treatment, Paul's immediate knee-jerk reaction isn't, what jerks? It's praise God. That's wild to me. So notice something about this jailer. He's told to guard them carefully. He puts them into the inner prison in stocks. And this is the worst part of the prison. Oftentimes, it's kind of right in the middle of the prison, kind of surrounded by all the other prisoners. And their feet are put into stocks, which is incredibly uncomfortable. You can't move at all. So not only have Paul and Silas already been beaten with rods, but again, you've got to imagine this. Like, you're beaten with rods, so you're you're bruised, you're bloodied, you're sore, you're in stocks, you can't move, you can't get comfortable. And yet for Paul and Silas, men whose whole life revolves around Jesus, this is what happens. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Matt Chandler picks up on this, and he says, wouldn't the Apostle Paul be the most frustrating human being alive? Like, it does not matter what anyone does to this man. He loved God and continued to show it in every possible way. He's the man who, when threatened with death, says, well, to die is game. And in response to that, the captors say, well, if death doesn't scare you, we'll torture you. And Paul says, oh, I don't count the present suffering as even worthy compared to the future glory I'm going to have. You can't win with a guy like this. If you want to kill him, he's cool because he's like, oh, okay, you get to be with Jesus. If you want to make him suffer, he's cool with that because he says, oh, that makes me more like Jesus. If you want to let him live, he's fine with that because for him to live is Christ. And so Matt Chandler follows up with this. He says, if you are united with Christ and your life revolves around his lordship, you are a person who can never be conquered. Whether you're in the jail cell or whether you're in Lydia's awesome house, the dealer of purple cloth, you are a person who cannot be conquered. You can't be conquered by the wealth that the world offers and you can't be conquered by the harm that the world offers you because Christ is at the center of your life. So Paul and Silas are are singing and praying and something extraordinary happens. And here's something you'll notice, that when people live for Christ, 
people whose lives orbit around Jesus and his kingdom, miraculous things tend to happen around them. And it does with Paul here. We pick it up. As they're singing, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and his household were baptized. Again, this is such an interesting, an interesting thing to have happen. So if a prisoner escaped or was lost at this period of time in the, in the Roman Empire, not always, but often, whoever's job it was to look after the prisoners, they would be executed, right? You let the prisoners escape, you can't do your job, dead. We only want people who do their job well. So if you're going to let prisoners out, you're gone. So the, the jailer, I mean, there's probably a few things going on in his life. He draws his sword to kill himself. Probably there's some honor-shame thing going on, like I failed in my duty. Maybe there's a fear thing going on. He's just seen this miraculous earthquake and every chain came loose and every door opened and he's probably terrified. And he's going, I think the only thing I can do is die because there's nothing left for me here. My, like, what are, what are my superiors going to say when all these prisoners leave? And so it's an automatic leap for him to think of taking his own life. But here's what's so interesting to me. Paul, seeing this, decides to use that moment to demonstrate the values of King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Even though the opportunity for escape and revenge is before them, Paul and Silas stay behind to share the gospel. Because isn't there a little part of you that if the dude who just beat you with rods put your feet in stocks and you see him about to kill himself as you're making your miraculous escape, you could justify that. You go, well, God let us free. Let's get out of here. Or you could look back and be like, well, that's just what he deserves. He doesn't recognize the true God. But Paul and Silas go, why would they stay behind? Because they recognize that every situation, every opportunity, every person is an opportunity to speak of the hope they have in Christ. So they stay. And when the jailer sees this, he's amazed by this. So you see that while Paul engaged Lydia through her intellect and he engaged the slave girl and her masters through spiritual power, he engages the jailer through, you know, the jailer is a living witness to a miracle, but also the kindness to stay when he could run. The kindness to say, I don't want you to die. I want you to live. And that's how the Philippian church begins with a businesswoman, a formerly demonized slave girl and a blue collar jailer duty bound to the Roman Empire. What a weird group of people. But whatever Paul does, he does it for Christ because he lives for Christ. That means he's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to act in ways that imitate how Jesus lived, especially here. Jesus said, love your enemies. Paul looks at the jailer who's beaten him and thrown him in stocks, and he says, Kate, love my enemies. Here I go. Don't run away. Like, we're not running away. We're staying. I don't know what happened to the jailer. If he act Maybe he ended up being executed for his failure. I don't know. But, but for Paul, he, he's going to praise Jesus with all of his life because he goes, if I die, I get to be with Jesus. And so what I want us to notice here is that if we live with Jesus at the center of our life, we'll find multiple ways of proclaiming Jesus to the world. With Lydia, the intelligent businesswoman, it's intellect. 
With the slave girl, it's a demonstration of Jesus' power over the spirits of darkness. With the jailer, it's kindness and action. He says, hey, to the jailer, it's going to be okay. We're not going to run away. But for those who live with Christ at the center of their life, with an intentional focus on representing Christ to the world, who see, as Paul did, that to live is Christ, you'll find many opportunities to demonstrate Jesus' power in words and in action and in simple displays of power. Because every person that you're going to meet will have a different way of hearing or understanding the message of Jesus. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's prompting in our hearts, will show us the path forward. The gospel message never changes. It's always, as Paul told the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. But the method of communicating the gospel can be different from person to person. The opportunity to talk about the hope that you have in Jesus might come in many different formats. I've heard people say, well, I'm scared to share my faith with people because I don't know apologetics. It's okay, you don't need to know apologetics. Sometimes you do, and if you do, you can try and like, find someone who knows that stuff, but oftentimes, share the hope that you have in Christ. Share what you know to be true of Christ. Make the most of every opportunity. The main idea for, for the text today that I pulled out of this is that our lives are to be centered around Jesus. To live is Christ, and that means not just an internally, but to recognize that externally, to live is Christ. As one Orthodox priest puts it, my goal in life is to bring Christ to any people I happen to meet. Whether it's in the church or in the grocery store, my prayer is that Christ will be seen in me. I think this is what Paul lived his life as. Paul lived a, what I'd call a fully surrendered life. He was all in wherever he went. His life belonged to Jesus. That's why he refers to himself as a slave to Christ. Because what he's saying is Jesus is the center of my life. Jesus is on the throne of my life. And we want to imitate Paul in this surrendered life. I want to... I want to close today just by reading something that Rich Stearns, the former president of World Vision, uh, said about living the surrendered life to Jesus, how it leads to a radically new way of living, and it, it allows for questions to be asked. He says this, a surrendered person has nothing left to lose because they've already put everything in God's hands. There's nothing left to fear or protect. A surrendered person can rise above the daily pressures and stresses of life and work. A surrendered person is not bound by the same worries, concerns, and priorities that consume others. A surrendered person is called to a higher purpose, to know, love, and serve God in their life. A surrendered person acts and looks differently because it's no longer about just them. So when coworkers, friends, family members look at a surrendered person, they see something unusual. Someone who marches to a different drummer. Someone whose life is about more than success, status, and money. They see a person who tries to exemplify the qualities of Jesus. Integrity, humility, encouragement, perseverance, courage and forgiveness. And this kind of surrendered person provokes questions. Why do you seem so different? Why do you care about me? What makes you tick? Like, what do you, why do you live your life? And the answers to all those questions are found in the gospel. The good news that God loves them and they too can embrace something bigger than themselves, something noble and pure and life-giving. And so my closing thought is, you know, we want to see our lives as centered around Jesus. And that tends to put everything into the right perspective. I find that when, when my life is centered around Jesus, I'm more aware of the way I talk with others and how I treat others, both the people I know and the people I don't know. When Jesus is at the center of our lives, it's only natural that you'll see all of life through the lens of your faith. So I'll say this, whatever we think about, whatever we talk about, whatever we are the most interested in, that's probably what has the most sway over your heart. When I'm pressing into Jesus, I find I talk about Jesus a lot. When I'm not pressing into Jesus, when I'm not surrendering fully, I find myself talking about money, 
like investing it. Like, oh, I just want to make a lot of money. Wouldn't that be great? Go on a great vacation, right? I find myself talking about retiring early. Oh, man, I can't wait to be retired. Like, when I'm not pressing into Jesus, all these other things have sway over my life. But when I'm surrendering to Jesus, when I wake up in the morning and go, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I find I walk into Walmart and I'm thinking about the things of God. I walk into the restaurant and I'm thinking about the things of God. And I'm ready for conversation. Even introverted me, who does not want to talk to anybody, I'm ready. Not because I want to do it, but because Jesus is compelling me to do this. And it's good for me. And so the question I want to end with today is just what or who is at the center of your heart? What are the things you think about? What are the things you dream about? What are the things you hope for and desire? Are there desires and thoughts or actions that you need to surrender and lay down so Jesus can be the center of your life? In the fall, we're gonna do a sermon series on the parables of Jesus. And one of the parables Jesus tells is about four different types of soil. And the third type of soil is something that I think every person in the North American church wrestles with. The third type of soil is the one where the good seed lands and it starts to grow and to sprout, but weeds choke it. And Jesus explains that parable and he says, the weeds are the worries and the pressures and the pleasures of this life. And you become so fixated on all the other things going on in life that you fail to bear fruit. And I think that's the word for the church in North America is that we have an abundance. And we can see all the things we don't have or we can you know, be consumed by every worry of life and it chokes us. But if we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we bear much fruit. So that's my word for you. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be choked out by the worries and the pressures and the pleasures of this life. I pray that each one of us would recognize that we are ambassadors of the kingdom, that we are representatives of your kingdom to this earth. I pray you'd give us opportunity to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would represent you well. I pray that we would be good witnesses here and even to the ends of the earth. That whenever people interact with us, they would know that there is something about us that seeks to do good in their lives. That we are a blessing to those we interact with. Holy Spirit, empower us for this. Empower us for holy and righteous living. Empower us to love our neighbors and our enemies in the ways that we ought to. We ask for this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.